What word or adjectives come to mind when you hear these names? Adolf Hitler and the German army during the Jewish Holocaust of World War II. Osama bin Laden in the Al-Qaeda terrorist group during the September 11th attacks on American soil. The serial killers in the 1970s and 80s of Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy. The third world country where tribal cannibals eat their human prey. We would probably say something like sick. It's disgusting. Deeply disturbing. Evil. Cold-hearted. Callous. Animal-like savages. You know, these terms and others like it would accurately describe the people I just mentioned. But the reality is none of us have ever met those individual people. We've never lived with them. We've never done life with them. We've never rubbed shoulders with them. I mean, we've read about them in history books. We've learned about them on documentaries, on Netflix. We might even take memorial site tours and go to museums where we see graphic pictures of some of the most inhumane and grotesque acts ever recorded on camera. But even then, there is a big difference between seeing and reading about something bad from afar versus an up-close and personal encounter with such evil. In the same way, there's one thing to imagine something bad happening to you, like enduring a night terror in your sleep, and then actually experiencing that night terror in real life, firsthand. Or a more common example, like I often say to remind engaged couples preparing to be married, you don't really know someone until you've lived with them. I typically then say something to the effect to this bubbly couple as they are embarking on marriage. Brother and sister, right now you have rose-colored glasses on. From your perspective, your fiancé is heaven's perfect gift with a bow and a tag that says your soulmate. But when real life and everyday temptations and trials happen, you will quickly find out who you really married. The blindfold comes off, the honeymoon is over, and you will begin to learn things about yourself and your spouse that you honestly couldn't know when you were dating. That's because you can only wear makeup for so long to cover up all those blemishes all the time. You can only run to the bathroom and use some mouthwash to disguise your morning breath before your spouse wakes up for so long. But to a more serious degree, marriage is really a context where you see another person at their weakest, 
their most vulnerable moments. When you sin, when you hurt, when you're sick, when you're afraid, when your spouse or yourself feels like giving up on life, giving up on Christianity, maybe even giving up on the marriage. But you see, it's in this type of context, when you're in close quarters, not from a distance, not thinking about some theoretical thing somewhere out there with somebody, but when you are really face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder with someone, you really get to know them. You get to know the good, the not-so-good, and the really bad. Everything that God already knows. You know, I would venture to say that though you and I have never met Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, nor have we ever lived on an island filled with cannibals, I bet we've all known at least one person in our life that is dominated by a particular sin. Like an animal whose leg is caught by the metal jaw of a hunter's trap. We've all known someone that's been enticed and lured in into a snare of the devil. Someone who is in bondage to some type of sinful pleasure, false religion, false teaching, or illicit behavior, or some other deviant lifestyle. Someone, really, when you get to know them, they're kind of a walking and talking prisoner in their own body. Someone that when you look into their eyes, you see they're being influenced, maybe even oppressed by something outside themselves. Maybe in such a way they can't overcome it. Maybe it's the drug addict strung out on meth or heroin. The drunk who cannot function without a 12-pack or a bottle of hard liquor nearby them. The pedophile who will spend the rest of their life either in jail or under close watch at a sexual watch registry, sex offender registry. The hard-hearted, angry spouse who becomes abusive and dangerous to be around. The boy or girl in school who incessantly bullies kids in the classroom. The person who is entrenched in an unwillingness to forgive the person who is enslaved to unbridled lust and perverted sexual orientations, the people group who is hostile and hard-hearted to the preaching of the gospel, the church fractured by ungodly division and ugly dissensions among its members, the pastors and teachers who preach a false gospel and give people false assurance of their salvation, Or maybe you know that self-deceived religious person who puts on a smile and puts on their church clothes each Sunday. They pay their taxes, they get good grades in school, they're successful at work, they're even viewed by their peers as respectful and a nice person. But inside their hearts and behind closed doors, their Christianity gets put on a hanger like a jacket you put in the closet. 
when no one is around or watching, especially when mature Christians are watching them, their costume comes off and their dark and self-destructive behavior is revealed. Maybe that was some of our testimonies before we became a Christian. I mean, we just sang some pretty glorious songs, right? Amazing love. My chains were set free. I imagine this room is filled with testimonies of people who were once in bondage, enslaved to different types of sin, and by God's grace, you've been delivered. Or maybe there's someone here today that maybe I just described who you really are when no one's watching. Friends, when we hear these historical tragedies or we hear these descriptions, I think we all have to be left wondering, why is this world filled with so much pain and evil? What makes people so destructive to others and even to themselves? As Christians, we already understand that the core problem with our world is man's rebellion against our God, our good and holy God. He is the one we have ultimately sinned against. Our moral corruption is first a vertical problem before it is a horizontal one. The Bible says by nature we hate God. And by nature we tend to hate those who are made in God's image. And God sees all these things. He knows all these things, and we are guilty before him. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, Paul lists out all these ways that we are sinful inside and outside. And then he summarizes our indictment over the whole world. In Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, friends, we have all committed deeds and uttered words that are sinful in God's eyes. Those are called sins of commission. And we have all not done what God has told us to do and to be. Those are called sins of omission. And then from time to time, we've all done the right things, but with the wrong motives. We've dotted our I's, we've crossed our T's, but we have a manipulative or a self-preserving motive behind what we're doing. Friends, sin is pervasive. You can't quarantine sin. It touches every aspect of the world and every aspect of our lives. We have all committed unintentional sins and we have all committed presumptuous sins. Left to ourselves, we drink sin down like water. And unless God shows us mercy and turns us toward him, we will all drown in our own self-destructive vomit. One theologian has said this, sin is not an innocent shortfall, but a toxic and damning condition of guilt before God. Friends, all sin is evil, and all sin has consequences. All sin is evil, and all sin has consequences. But friends, not all sin is the same degree of evil. 
Sometimes the darkness can get so dark, we recognize that there's actually something more powerful at play than merely bad human choices or some kind of unfortunate random roll of the dice coincidence of how life has turned out for you. The Bible also tells us that there are spiritual forces of evil that intensify self-deception among mankind. The scriptures speak of a fallen, angelic creature that is opposed to the character of God, opposed to the will of God, and is in hostile enmity with Jesus and all of Jesus' people. This creature is given different names in the Bible. He's sometimes called Satan or the devil. And under his regime, he exerts tricks, traps, and violent intentions through unclean spirits, sometimes called evil spirits, all throughout the world, with an unholy desire to undo and undermine all of God's good creation, the target for the father of lies is to shoot fiery darts, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Our ancient foe deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, and he delights in disrupting what God has made good. And his desire is to bring chaos and disorder in what God has made good. When people today talk about demons, or they hear about demons or the supernatural, you're going to meet people who believe it's a bunch of hocus pocus. You're going to meet people that believe, well, only what you can see is all that there is. But friend, that's exactly what Satan would want you to believe. He would want you to believe he doesn't exist. He is the father of lies, remember? You see, when we see abnormal behaviors and evil activity in the world, the atheist camp and the naturalistic scientist of the world, they will write it off as simply and only a psychological problem. Abnormal behavior. It's really just behavior modification. We, we need to control actions and attitudes through different kind of mechanisms to contain people's tempers. And I think we are too quick to jump into that line of thinking by automatically writing off every act of evil as simply a person's upbringing or their environment. And while certainly there is a complex web, a complex meshing of nature versus nurture, it's not always that simple, if we fall in that line of thinking, that all there is is all that we can see with our eyes, friends, we have just gutted a major portion of the New Testament. Jesus talked about the demonic. Jesus himself encountered, not in a magazine, not in a museum, not in some ivory tower 
but in a real, powerful, personal, face-to-face, unforgettable way. So when Jesus encountered the chaos of sin in this world, and when Jesus stood toe-to-toe with the stronghold of Satan's military, what do you think was the outcome? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 490. This morning we pick up with a scene in Jesus' life and ministry where the disciples have successfully survived the worst cruise ship vacation they've ever had. A storm arose in the Sea of Galilee, and we read at the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus calmed a violent storm at sea, all by a simple command, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. The disciples were in utter shock. They thought they knew Jesus. They thought they had graduated to the master's level of their discipling course and following Jesus. But what they figured out that day in the boat was that they had only scratched the surface. Jesus did what only God could do. Jesus is the Lord, not just of the boat, not just of the disciples. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Storms and waves ebb and flow at his command. So when the disciples see this, we read in Mark 4, 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? In our passage today, we're going to discover two significant things that occurred as they sailed across the Sea of Galilee. First, they succeeded. Jesus kept his word. We're going to go across to the eastern shore. And they made it, just like he said. And yet, the second thing we're going to see is what awaited them was another storm. But this time, the storm took a very different form. Let's read together this new storm that Jesus and the disciples encountered. In Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. 
And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is God's word. As a result of our time together, I pray this morning we are left amazed at the power and mercy of Jesus towards sinners like us. If you're taking notes, I have two main points that will serve as headings for us. I'm just going to give you point one up front. Point number one, Jesus encounters chaos and subdues it with unrivaled authority. Jesus encounters chaos and subdues it with unrivaled authority. That's verses 1 to 13. Here in verse 1, we discover that Jesus and the disciples eventually make it to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Mark tells us they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, if you are a diligent student of the Bible... You will read in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Many times they have the same story, but from different perspectives and different eyewitnesses, giving different details to the passage. Well, in our account this morning, you'll see there are some variations between Luke, Mark, and Matthew on the exact location of where they arrived. Luke's gospel agrees with Mark, but Matthew's gospel says they arrived to the country of the Gadarenes. Matthew 8, 28. Well, is this a contradiction? 
is this a, an apparent discrepancy that shows that the Gospels are not reliable? Well, not so soon, not so quick. In your own time, if you look at one of those maps in the back of your Bible, they can be useful for things like this. You'll notice that these locations that are mentioned in Matthew and in Mark's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel are situated in a broad area all the way from about 37 miles southeast of Galilee to about six miles to the east of Galilee. And from the gospel records, there appears to be uncertainty here on the exact location that they initially stepped foot in. That's why there's two different places mentioned in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's. But all the gospel writers acknowledge, did you notice the phrase there? That it was in the country or the region that these places were located where they ended up landing. Which means the gospel writers are not trying to be utterly exact, but to give us an approximate general territory, a general area of which is being emphasized on where they landed. Uh, though it's not 100% certain, there was a town with a similar name called Gergesa in the northeast corridor of the Sea of Galilee that existed. And from archaeologist discoveries and records found in church history, church tradition has typically identified this specific place, Gergesa, which sounds very similar to Gadara and the other place. And so either way, Luke's gospel makes it pretty clear. Luke 8, 26, they landed on the opposite side of Galilee. That's the point. They made it to the other side. They're on the east coast. And that's where we're going to just move on. And then Mark records for us, there wasn't any kind of honeymoon period. There, was, there wasn't any kind of like rest and relaxation part before ministry began. No, in a quick, fast, and in a hurry kind of way, Jesus is encountered with a new storm. This time, the storm was not raging from the skies or the sea, but it was a storm raging itself violently in a man. In verse 2, we read, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has ever encountered this. Jesus is not shocked in that sense. If you've been following with us through the gospel of Mark for some time, uh, we've seen that Jesus has gone face to face with Satan himself and many demons and many unclean spirits that he was casting out of people who were being oppressed in the Galilean region. For example, turn back with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. I want you to look with me at Mark 1 verses 21 to 27 as we see one of the most powerful things that happened at the outset of his ministry when Jesus entered of all places, a place of worship, a place where Jews would receive their Torah instruction. Look with me in Mark 1, starting in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man, a 
of an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, these unclean spirits, you can go back to turn to Mark chapter 5, that we read about in Mark 1 and Mark 5, they're also called evil spirits and demons throughout the Gospels and in the book of Acts. They're really referring to the same created beings. Uh, These are none other than the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, verse 12. Friends, the reason I spent so much time in the introduction and even just right there about what we're talking about, about unclean spirits and demons, is because Christians can fall into this way of thinking that they're inconsistent in their theology. You believe in the virgin birth. You believe in a God who's always been, who spoke the world into existence. But somehow along the way, we forget that there's a supernatural, superhuman forces at play in this world, in this community, in this town, among people that you and I know. So as a preacher of the gospel, that I will stand before Jesus, I need to say exactly what the Bible says, even if you mock me as a fool. As Christians, we are in a continual, unreconcilable or irreconcilable war. I will say that again. We are in a continual unreconcilable, irreconcilable war against the assaults of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And rest assured, dear Christian, if you are one of Christ's disciples, if you are one of God's adopted children through faith in Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us that we've been bought with a price. The work on the cross is finished. The Lord owns our bodies. We possess God's Holy Spirit pure, clean, and Holy Spirit. And friends, if you possess God's Spirit, you belong to Jesus. That means a true Christian can certainly be opposed and attacked or even at times be tricked by demonic spirits. The enemy at times can even gain a foothold in your life. Read Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. However, especially if you're a young Christian in here and you struggle with fear, I want to give you some assurance. A true Christian can never be possessed or indwelt by a demon. That's one of the most beautiful promises of the gospel, that when we become Christians, we turn from darkness to light. And then we are ultimately delivered from the power of Satan to the power of God. Acts 26, 18. By God's amazing grace, 
we are mercifully transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Colossians 1.13. In Christ, every true Christian is a child of the most high God, the same God who rules the ocean, the same God who rules the demons, has promised to powerfully protect our souls from ever falling away from him. Amen? Praise be to God. But if we don't belong to Jesus, if we do not have the spirit of Jesus Christ living in us, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. If we're not born again, if we have not been made new creatures in Christ, friends, we are being led astray by a very different spirit. And it's not the Holy Spirit, but it's the spirit of this present evil age. If we have not repented of our sins and believed the gospel and bowed to King Jesus, oh, dear friend, demonic influences and lies and demonic strongholds and the power of the devil, you open up your life to that. That's a terrifying reality. If you don't have the spirit of Jesus Christ living within you, sealed and secured by God's grace, you do open up your life to a very supernatural power that you cannot overcome on your own. You see, friends, that's exactly what Ephesians 2 teaches us. Before we know Jesus, we are being led by a different spirit. We are dead in our sin, and we are enslaved to the one who loves sin. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 2, And you were dead in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Friends, who is the prince of the power of the air? Who is the spirit, listen to what he said, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience? It's Satan. It's the devil. It's the deceiver of the world. It's the one Jesus spoke about earlier in the parable of the four soils. The one, when we hear the word, snatches the word of God from our hearts and to keep us from believing the gospel. Friends, if you don't think that the enemy roams even in church, why is it that some people can hear the same sermon that changed your life and their heart remain hard to it. The evil one comes and snatches the word from their hearts, and they don't believe. Friends, that's not circumstances. That's spiritual warfare. And see, this is exactly who Jesus courageously, not a coward, courageously encounters again this time on the opposite side of Galilee. Why is that significant? Up until this point in Jesus' ministry, he has only spent time in Jewish territory. But now he's in Gentile territory. In the Decapolis, verse 20 says, these Hellenistic 
cities filled with Gentile religion, Gentile influences. And when Jesus shows up, there's a whole different level of demonic activity going on in this region. In fact, the demonic activity is so fierce and dense and dark. Uh, Mark depicts for us a military-like force that is working in this region in one man's life. You see, more than simply a pawn on a chessboard, Satan is acting like a general directing his private infantrymen wherever he wants. But what's remarkable about this is who approaches who first. Jesus just steps foot on soil. He didn't go looking for trouble. He's not a demon hunter. (laughs) Don't ever get into that, by the way. Any of that paranoia, haunted cities, it's a waste of your money, it's a hoax. Jesus didn't go looking for demons. Jesus didn't start a side gig called get your exorcism classes in. No. No, don't waste your money, your time, or your energy with a bunch of nonsense. No. But when the light of the world enters into a dark area, the demons come out. In this instance, the man with the unclean spirit is sprinting. That's what Mark says, he ran to him. He ran to Jesus like he's in a race. He's in a hurry. He's tired and he's weary. And he's running from something in order to run to someone for help. And as soon as he lays eyes on Jesus, he falls down. This word here, to mean fall down, it can be used at times to mean a posture of worship but it can also mean a posture of surrender. He's waving the white flag. A different general, a different commander-in-chief, a different king has stepped into enemy territory. And friends, when Jesus stepped foot on this land, this man with an unclean spirit knew exactly who he was. This man runs to Jesus, falls down before Jesus, verse 6. He cries out with a loud voice in utter terror, verse 7. And then Jesus exposes this demon. You might even say a demonic army that had been tormenting, oppressing this man's life for untold amounts of time. This man... We're not told a lot about his upbringing. We don't really know how old he is. But we do know this, that his pain was so bad that family and friends withdrew from him. He's by himself. He's lonely. His life is full of despair, and he is now waving the white flag in surrendering to King Jesus. The man then speaks to Jesus, or you may even say the demon takes over his voice and speaks to Jesus, verse 9. And he says his name is Legion. It's really the only time we ever see this happen in the Gospels where Jesus asks, what's your name? 
As Chris just read earlier in Acts 19, these Jewish exorcists tried to do what only God can do, and the demons called back, Jesus, I know. Paul, we recognize, but who are you? Jesus asked the demon his name because Jesus was about to do something to show off his power even over the mightiest forces of evil. Uh, The word legion is a military term often used for a Roman army, somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 men. Whether this man was demonized by thousands of demons or the intensity, the volume, was of such a strength of a Roman army, The main point is made clear either way. The man had reached a very dark and very desperate place. We might say he had reached rock bottom. For all practical terms, this man was currently married to Satan. He was in a close covenant with the devil. His mind, his will, Even his body was a slave to our sinister opponent. And friends, before you read this like a Hollywood reel and think that Satan only reveals himself in extremely scary ways, never forget Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light as do his ministers as well. And they only come to kill, to steal, and to destroy your life. Friends, have you ever had someone brought into your life quite unexpectedly that you didn't even know what to do with? Have you ever had someone brought into your life, they pursued you, They entered into your life that you honestly had no idea what to do with. Maybe as they began to talk about their life, you find yourself walking into a dense fog of confusion and chaos and disorder. And when you think you got them figured out and when you think you got your finger on their issue, on what makes them tick, it's just a matter of time you discover something else about them, and then something else about them. One door leads to another door, leads to another door, leads to another door. And the more you get to know them, the more you realize you don't know what exactly to do with them. Their problems seem to be beyond anything you've ever seen before. Their fears are extremely irrational. Their thoughts about life are hopeless. Their inability to get along with people is unusually odd. Their very countenance leaves you feeling uneasy. Even their very presence makes the hair on your neck stand up. Maybe you even feel unsafe when they enter into a room and you're not really sure why. Maybe you've sat in the counseling room with them. You've listened to their problems, but you're still scratching your head. You've taken them to a doctor, and they've prescribed medication for them and various treatments, but things don't seem to get better. They get worse. 
They've been to AA meetings. They've been to anger management classes. But nothing seems to be working. This person's problems not only leave you speechless and making you feel totally out of your league, but it appears that many other people can confirm that they've seen the same thing too. Friends, that's just a sneak peek into what walked into Jesus' counseling room in this day. That's just a preview. That's just a snippet of the type of person that sprinted into Jesus' life and had surrendered, fallen down, and pleaded for mercy. The disciples wouldn't know what to do with that. In fact, we don't see almost anything going on in them. They're just kind of, well, he did stop a storm. (laughs) But they're seeing something they've never seen before. But Jesus doesn't look surprised. This is just kind of another day in the office for Jesus. And then Jesus does something quite unusual. In fact, Jesus does something he'll never do again in the gospel accounts. Legion knows who Jesus is, and all the demons know who Jesus is, by the way. And they make a bargain with Jesus. They are fearful Jesus has come to take them and cast them into hell now. Because Satan already knows he's lost the war. The demons already know they've lost the war. They already know the lake of fire is their destination. And that's why they plead, Jesus, have you come to torment us? Have you come to destroy us before the appointed time? And so they fearfully plead before Jesus, do not torment us. Jesus had a different plan for them, at least for that moment in time. They begged him that he wouldn't send them out into the country with nowhere to go. So Jesus did something that all the people in the country, all the people throughout the region would be talking about for a very long time once they witnessed what Jesus was about to do. You see, the demons, they want to inhabit something. They want to inhabit someone. And they knew of a massive herd of pigs on the hillside they could enter into. And then Jesus does what every sausage lover in here would have hated. Jesus gave them permission to inhabit the pigs. Now, it appears this happened pretty fast. We don't see this kind of methodical process going on. The legion of demons leave this man, and nearly three years of bacon goes falling over into the Sea of Galilee and drown to death. The pigs are gone. The demons have left this man. And it's real quiet. This might be the most peaceful few seconds and minutes this man has experienced in decades. Friends, chaos was subdued that day by the Prince of Peace. Confusion was brought into clarity that day. 
King Jesus stepped into enemy's territory among these idolatrous and pagan Gentiles. And without any struggle, without any problem, Jesus has claimed another hostage from the devil for his own. Jesus saved another sinner who was held captive to their sin and under the stronghold of Satan. Oh, to my non-Christian friend, what do you think the reason is for the season? What do you think the central message of Christmas is really all about this week? Is it just about cocoa and cookies? Is it just about spending money and spending time with family? Is it just about getting a week off from work or school? Or do you think it's about something much greater than those things? Kids, what do you think the central message of Christianity is all about? What do you think, mommy and daddy, grandma and grandpa, what do you think means the most to them during this Christmas season? You see, Christmas is about the inbreaking of God's kingdom, penetrating the dark night of the soul. Baby Jesus laying in that humble inn was God's rescue plan for our imprisonment in sin. That baby would one day grow up, by the way. He would become a man, and as a man, he would identify with our pain, with our suffering, with our loneliness. He was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. Jesus, the God-man, came and took on human flesh. Jesus of Nazareth, leaving heaven, became like us and yet never sinned like us. You see, the Jesus who calmed the storm at the Sea of Galilee is Lord of creation. And Jesus is also the one who calmed this demonized man, this violent storm that raged on his soul because Jesus is Lord over even the demonic realm as well. You see, the message of Christmas is really about a king who would one day come and declare war on the prince of darkness. It's about the prince of peace who came to destroy the prince of the power of the air. This is the king of God's kingdom who's come to rule and reign over the kingdom of darkness. Friends, this is about Jesus. He is the son of the most high God. And Jesus has come to rightfully claim who belongs to him. Friends, that is why Jesus came in human flesh. He's rescuing hostages that have been captivated, who have been captured, who have been enslaved, who have been oppressed by demonic forces and in bondage to sin to set them free. That's the gospel. That's the good news. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, this Jesus, when he hung on the cross of Calvary, he put the principalities and rulers of evil spirits to open shame by dying on the cross. 
He canceled the debt of sin that waged against us. Think of all your sins that condemn you. Think of all the sins that God could condemn you for. And at the cross, he canceled it. The accuser of the brethren. Satan can only shoot fiery darts, but they cannot stick. Because the debt was paid. And God raised him from the dead. The grave could not hold him. Satan could not get him to sin, his perfect life, his sin atoning death. And the power of God was on display when God raised him from the dead. Friends, the cross and the incarnation and the empty tomb is God's way of showing off. The triune God is infinitely more powerful than all of Satan's army combined. Oh, friends, I don't know what reason or reasons you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, but I can pretty much tell you whatever reason you have doesn't outweigh the joy and peace and freedom there is in following Jesus. Just wave the white flag. Surrender. Give up. Jesus has already won the war. We're just mopping up the final enemies before we go to glory. Come to Christ. Turn from your sins. Trust in him. He is a wonderful savior to follow the rest of your life. You see, this man who was oppressed and tormented by demonic spirits had every conceivable form of pain crushing his life. And once Jesus stepped foot in that soil, he realized he was the only one that could truly deliver him. He surrendered to the Lord of glory. And this man was set free. When Jesus encounters chaos, he subdues it with unrivaled authority. Point number two, our final point. Jesus transforms chaos into something amazing worth telling others about. Jesus transforms chaos into something amazing worth telling others about. So, we're on the latter half of the story. What happened once the 2,000 pigs took a nosedive into the Sea of Galilee? Well, the same thing that would happen today if any one of us would witness such a supernatural act. Facebook posts flooded the internet. Text messages started hitting you in your pocket. Twitter feeds were blowing up. YouTube videos were made telling the world what they had just saw. Newspaper articles, the Times record, hot off the press. You get the point. People started talking. There is no way on planet Earth that you can behold a supernatural work of God and not be amazed to tell others about it. You see, when God starts doing a powerful work, it gets people's attention. Whether that's in an individual's life, a church's life, or an entire town or city's life, God knows how to powerfully work in his world and in a way that gets people's attention on him. But how do people respond? Did everyone respond in the same way? Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled 
and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. Now look at verses 16 and 17. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Mark tells us that the first response of the public showed that many people were somewhat angry, but definitely afraid of Jesus. They were probably angry because of the herdsmen. Think about it. They just lost their family business. There goes the future bacon and sausage for the boys and the grandkids to live upon. There was an economic crisis that Jesus apparently was the cause of. He sent these pigs, whee, over into the Sea of Galilee. Oink, oink, and all, gone. And they're sitting there broke, confused, frustrated, and afraid. You see, there were others in the country that probably had pigs too, and other livestock, and thought, well, I better get up out of here with my piggy. I need to get up on my horse because if this man can cast out demons into animals, we're getting up out of here. Friends, they were afraid of Jesus and they didn't know what to do with Jesus. God may put people in your life with so many moral, mental, emotional, family, and spiritual problems and you and I may not have a clue may not even have an idea how to minister to them. But do you know that the opposite is also true? When Jesus starts working powerfully in a community, powerfully in a church, many people won't know what to do with Jesus. They won't know what to do with the Christians Jesus is using in a powerful way. Brothers and sisters, when the message of the gospel powerfully enters into a country or a people group that had never heard of him, there are always going to be mixed responses. Consider the number of missionaries who have entered into countries where the gospel has never been known, never been preached, Christ has never been welcomed. How many have lost their lives as martyrs for the faith? Consider the record in the book of Acts where Stephen is stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. But then we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Verse 7, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, 
came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Acts 8 verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Brothers and sisters, did you just catch that? There was great persecution against the church. But what did that persecution against the church lead to? Was it the end of Christianity? Was it the end of the mission Jesus gave his disciples? Many heard and believed and were delivered from their bondage. And the text says there was much joy in that city. Friends, that's why Christians are called the light of the world. Because we have a joyful message to be joyful about. Joy to the world is a glorious hymn to sing. But it's also a glorious truth to relish in all year long. You see, when Jesus encounters chaos, he will subdue it with unrivaled authority. That's why it's been commonly said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Think of the scores of pastors and faithful Christian men and women throughout history who've been run out of dying in unhealthy churches because of their commitment to the Bible, because of their desire to be faithful in obeying what Jesus commanded. But why does this happen? Why is it that the local church of all places can be one of the fiercest places where Satan roams the loudest. Pastor and author Andy Davis tells us the greatest threat to Satan's dark kingdom is a healthy, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting, spirit-empowered local church. A dead church is no threat to him. Friends, what a privilege we have to be one of scores of churches that can be a beacon of light in a world that lacks joy in Jesus. Friends, one of the greatest threats, though, against the kingdom of darkness are a body of believers, whether it's 12, 120, or 1,200 of them. If you take the claims of Jesus serious, if you believe in the supernatural and that God is greater then all the strongholds of the enemy combined. Friends, the greatest threat to the kingdom of darkness in the River Valley and in Barling and on 813 Fourth Street would be a church that seeks to be a spirit-filled, Christ-exalting, biblical local church. So friends, don't be surprised if a whole legion of demons come and attack. And yet also don't be afraid because Jesus, he who is in you, is greater than he is who in the world. Friends, Satan will never give up territory without a fight. Let me say that again. Satan will never give up territory without a fight. Satan will never give up territory without a fight. When Jesus stepped into that new place, that new territory, the most violent, the most vicious, the most demonically influenced man was the first one at the doorstep of Jesus. Friends, 
Never think for a moment. When you start thinking, I want to pray and seek the Lord. I want to be the man or woman of God. I want to be a child who is a witness for Jesus in the workplace or in the schools. All these ways the enemy is going to attack. Oh, but brothers and sisters, what a privilege it is to worship the one who's not afraid. To worship the one who the demons tremble before. We're told in James to resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. Members of CCBC, pray that we would not be a sleepy or lazy church. Pray that we would be vigilant, clothed in the armor of God, fighting the good fight of the faith with increasing zeal year after year. Pastor Blake's rant, back to Mark chapter 5. There was another response to Jesus. A whole lot of people got scared and angry and anxious. But what about the man who had the demons? How did he respond? Did he care about the pigs? Did he care about the herdsmen? What was his response at Jesus' presence and power in his life? Look at verses 18 to 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to, began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. You really see two basic responses of people towards Jesus. There was fear in many that were begging Jesus, get out of here. Leave. We don't want you here. What you did was powerful, but we don't want it. It's too risky. You may ruin too much of our future. You may take away our money and our livelihood. You're too much of a threat to our community. Get out. But then there was faith from one man that led to begging to Jesus. Begging Jesus to stay close to him. Begging Jesus that he could go with him in the boat, with the disciples, to be with Jesus. He was willing to risk it all. He was willing to leave family and friends and all to go with the one who delivered him. So what happened to the man who had been delivered from a legion of evil spirits? He was transformed by the power of God and he evangelized the mercy of God. He was transformed by the power of God and he became an evangelist for the mercy of God. Notice here he's transformed. Look at verses 3 and 5 with me again of what it was like of his whole life before Jesus showed up. Look at verses 3 to 5. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Friends, just three quick observations about this man. He was a man, number one, who lived in isolation from others. He lived in isolation from others. He lived among a graveyard. The tombs. 
You might say he lived in solitary confinement. He was hard to live with. It's implied in the text that he did have family and friends in the area. But they didn't know what to do with him. Counselors didn't know what to do with him. Family didn't know what to do with him. And they stayed away from him. He was a very lonely man. Notice also he was a man that no one could offer lasting help to. He was a man that it says no one could restrain. They gave him chains. They shackled his feet to try to keep him under control. And the power of the demonic was way stronger than any of their man-made ideas. Friends, that's just a good reminder for us who minister to others who are hurting in their lives. Some folks need to go to a doctor and receive medical treatment that can cure real physical problems. Some people simply need a friend that will stick with them, love them, have compassion towards them, and speak the truth to them. But brothers and sisters, beyond those qualifications, we also need to see people both as physical and spiritual beings. On the one hand, we shouldn't demonize every sickness. The demon cold. The demon flu. Don't do that. Another just, no, no, no. Rookie mistake, bad theology, don't do that. If you're sick, welcome to a fallen world with a fallen body. We don't demonize every sickness. Not every sickness is a result of the devil. We shouldn't demonize every mental or emotional problem someone has. A lot of people have been scarred and hurt and they've kissed the church goodbye because they have bad theology thinking all depression, all anxiety or everything in between is from the devil. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. We are physical and spiritual beings. So we shouldn't rule out that there are real physiological things that need to be treated in like manner. And yet in the same breath, Christians, we should not rule out the spiritual forces of evil that can be at play. Superhuman forces cannot be fought with man-made strategies. Superhuman forces cannot be strategized, cannot overcome with man-made devices. Paul tells us what our weapons are. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And lastly, friends, he was a man who was self-destructive. This man was so helpless and miserable with his life, he began to cut himself with stones. Friends, self-hatred that's exerted by harming yourself, it is the love language of Satan. Doesn't mean you are Satan, doesn't mean you're possessed by a demon. But that type of hatred is not coming from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who comes to dwell within us, the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you have challenges in your life with physically harming yourself, you need to seek help about that. Talk to someone who can listen and guide you through that. But the nature of the demonic is to lead people to be self-destructive. 
But when Jesus encountered this man and subdued the chaos and transformed him, this man started to view life all differently. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion. Notice what he's doing. I love this. Sitting there. Sitting. Resting, basically. Sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Friends, Jesus changed this man from the inside out. His will, his emotions, his heart, even his own body had been healed, had been changed. And because he was changed, he wanted to tell others of what God had done in his life one who would proclaim God's mercy to others who need God's mercy. That's why we have baptism testimonies here at CCBC, where we have those who go down into the waters to testify of what God has done in their life. Friends, come back tonight to the evening service. We've got a host of testimonies from different brothers and sisters boasting and declaring of what God is doing in their life. But you know what's so interesting about this passage? We're coming up on the roller coaster, the climax. You think it's kind of like a Hallmark movie finish? The tissues are coming. Oh, what's the final ending going to be? He's going to jump in the boat. The disciples are going to welcome him in. Team Jesus back to Galilee. Woo! Thank you, Katie, for laughing. Dad jokes are bad, aren't they, Noah? Yeah. This man wants to get in the boat with Jesus. He's willing to risk it all. Jesus, who loves that man more than any human being who's ever lived, looked at him and said, no. Stay right where you are. You got a big ministry. You got a huge mission field in your hometown. Go to your friends. Go to your family who disowned you. Go to those people who think you're crazy and out of your mind and tell them the mercy I have shown you. Tell them how good and gracious and powerful and merciful the Lord Jesus Christ has been to you. Friends, sometimes Jesus does tell us to pack our bags, get ready, and be willing to go wherever he tells us to go. And yet there are many times the Lord says, stay. Stay right where you're at. Stay in the job you're in. Stay in the neighborhood you live in. Stay in the marriage you're in. Stay in the local church you're in. Dig deep and blossom where you're planted. Dig deep and blossom where you're planted. And friends, that means that we always have a mission. Whether we're going overseas or we're right here at home to tell others of God's mercy that is extended to them in Christ. Jesus powerfully worked in that region. A lot of people wanted Jesus out of there. And Jesus told one man who loved him more than that whole region combined, stay, represent me, proclaim my mercy, I will use you mightily. 
Friends, the more you hear about Jesus and what he teaches, do you find yourself wanting to tell others about Jesus? Or do you want Jesus to leave you alone? Do you find yourself wanting to tell others more about Jesus the more you know him? Or do you want Jesus to leave you alone? Let's pray. Father, you are our God most high. And we praise you that we can call you Father. We praise you that we are not children of the day, children of the dark, but we are children of light who have been brought into your marvelous kingdom of light. Lord, I pray that today that we would be encouraged to tell others of your mercy towards us. Lord, I also pray that we would be content and faithful and dig deeper roots and blossom where we're planted. Lord, I also pray for those of us who encounter people who are deeply troubled, possibly even deeply oppressed by spiritual demonic warfare. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us hearts of love. Give us courage in the face of being afraid. Lord, I pray that you would make CCBC a church that is a threat to Satan's kingdom. And we pray for other gospel-preaching churches to be faithful and become a threat to Satan's kingdom as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.